What is biblical evangelism? Why do so few people engage in it today? What is apologetics? What does it look like when apologetics is done in a way that is faithful to the Christianity it aims to defend? What are the new challenges facing biblical evangelism and apologetics in our age and within our culture, and how do we overcome them? My name is Ed Dingus, and you're listening to The Reformed Ran, a podcast where I talk about things like theology, uh, apologetics, even some philosophy, even some politics, social issues that are facing uh, society, the culture, uh, and the church. Uh, So today we're talking about evangelism and apologetics in a postmodern culture. Let's jump right into evangelism. What is evangelism exactly? Uh, I guess we could run through a a litany of things that it is not. Um, What is it? Well, just a couple of of things. It is not inviting people to church and stopping at that. Uh, It is not handing out water bottles. It could involve handing out tracts as long as that activity is accompanied by a real conversation. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, and it literally means gospeling, according to Ligonier Ministries. (laughs) It does mean gospeling, uh, telling the good news. Uh, Simply put, evangelism is the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this raises the immediate question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right? The confusion created by false converts who are given a place at the at the at the table in most modern evangelical churches these days. So the confusion around what the gospel is and what it is not is is really off the charts when you listen to people. If you were to go out and take a survey and just ask people coming out of churches, articulate the gospel for me. Most of them could not do it. Most of what they would say would be wrong, not the gospel. Now, the church has got to do better when it comes to equipping. When it comes to equipping and when it comes to being the counterculture institution that it's called to be. Remember, we the church. We are light existing in darkness. Now, I'm going to give you an example of the, the, the stupidity, the outright ignorance, and the outrageous ideas that are out there coming from people who claim to love Christ and know the gospel. And believe it. 
One man on Twitter said, the Bible is deeply, constantly concerned with where people live and how their quality of life is, how we approach home ownership, renting, leasing, evicting, etc., are all reflections of our faith. Housing is a gospel issue. Now, this nonsense began to spring up when the racial reconciliation started and then the woke movement followed and social justice and a social gospel and liberation theologies invaded the evangelical churches. Everything became a gospel issue, which really meant that the gospel had been completely and totally eclipsed. And that is the case. The gospel has been completely and totally eclipsed. The first thing that you need to do is understand what the gospel is. Making everything a gospel issue, including housing, is absolutely outrageous. It's kind of rubbish. We now have in in our churches everywhere. The churches are not communities, but instead a collection of individuals whose only unity is the notion of disunity. There are as many beliefs as there are people. Anything goes. Any view goes. And any behavior goes. The the Apostle Paul said, Be of the same mind. Confessing the same beliefs is what he's getting at. Embracing the same beliefs. And those beliefs should be reflected from, drawn out of, informed by Scripture. So what is the gospel, and why should we continue to proclaim it? This is really the concern of this particular episode. So let's let's move now to what the gospel actually is. We know what evangelism is. Let's see if we can understand what the gospel is. In order to understand what the gospel is, We start with the bad news. And what is the bad news? Paul Washer once said, God is perfectly good, and you're not. That's the bad news. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now this is being attacked inside the churches, inside the churches, on every plane that you could imagine. Pastors are attacking it. Lay people are attacking it. Uh, The Sunday school teachers are attacking it. The professors are attacking it. There is a serious attempt at this point, not just to deny total depravity, a core doctrine of the Christian faith, but original sin, another core doctrine of the Christian faith. What makes it a core doctrine? It's a core doctrine because Scripture clearly teaches it. It isn't a core doctrine because we've looked at it and selected it as a very important doctrine. 
It is a very important doctrine, apart from whether or not a human selected it or not. It's an important doctrine for the, sim- for the very simple reason that Scripture clearly teaches it as it is teaching it here. Clearly. All the hermeneutical ingenuity on the planet will not change the meaning of this text. All it will do is cast your hermeneutic, the integrity of your hermeneutic, in great, into great suspicion. And that's all it does. When men like Leighton Flowers, uh, Arminianism, Pelagianism, deny that this verse is talking about the universal condition of human beings, the only thing they accomplish is call into question the integrity of the hermeneutics. Now, that's the bad news. The bad news is God is perfectly good. You're not. You've sinned against a holy God, an infinitely holy, righteous, just God. Now, the good news is that God is not only righteous and just. He is merciful and loving, and his mercy is endless. So in my sin and rebellion against God, I come under condemnation. I come under eternal damnation apart from his mercy. Enter God's mercy. I'm a lawbreaker. I have violated the law of a perfectly holy, perfectly good God. I stand condemned. There's nothing I can bring to get out from under that guilt, that condemnation. And I don't just mean a guilty feeling. I mean the fact that I am guilty like a murderer convicted in a court of law. I have been found guilty in the eyes of God of violating God's law. I am at the mercy of the judge to do with as he pleases, and I have no complaints. Nothing that can be sustained. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, has been uh, pointed to as probably the most comprehensive, succinct definition of the gospel. And it reads like this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. I make known to the gospel. He preached the gospel. They received the gospel. They stand in the gospel. They're saved by the gospel. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, the gospel, unless you believed in vain. A vain faith is a false faith. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for the sins of the world. He takes away our guilt. He replaces our guilt with his righteousness. This is the gospel. He was buried and raised again on the third day. So before the good news, we're going to stand before God and be judged according to the guilt of our rebellious sin, our law-breaking. God's law is perfect. It's holy. It's, It's righteous. And I don't mean the Mosaic law. 
I mean God's law that existed and was the basis for the law given at Sinai. The law of God. That is a, a reflection of God's very nature and character. And we're going to be judged according to the perfect, righteous, sinless life of Christ. Under the good news. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Before, I'm going to stand before God as a lawbreaker. Guilty of violating his law. Now, I'm going to be judged according to the perfect, righteous, sinless life of Christ. As if, I'm going to be judged as if. I were Jesus Christ, who walked the earth as a sinless, perfect human for 33 approximately years. <laughs> this is known as the great exchange. Jesus takes on my guilt. He steps in my stead as a guilty sinner and receives the punishment of God at Calvary. Punishment that should have been mine. Through faith in his work, I now step into his shoes and will be judged before God according to the righteous life that he lived. He took my guilt, gave me his righteousness. Through faith in his name, I will be judged according to the, to the, the work, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. I'm a lawbreaker. Christ took my punishment. I was guilty. And in exchange, he gave me his righteousness through faith. Faith alone. That's the gospel. It is not God has a great plan for your life. He's going to make things better. If you just turn to him, life will have meaning and purpose and make sense. Um, he, he'll restore your marriage. He will give you a good marriage versus, you know, maybe you have a bad marriage. He will uh, uh, work in your children and, and give you a, all of these things, make you, you know, great employee. You, you'll, you'll have a better attitude and be promoted at work and, and uh, just you'll have all kinds of joy and contentment and peace in your life. That's not the gospel, and it's not true. Christians don't have any less troubles in this world than anyone else. In fact, we have more. We have more because we're Christians. Right. Okay, so we've, we've, we've determined that evangelism is the spreading of the gospel. We've determined that the gospel is the good news, that I was a lawbreaker under the condemnation of God, guilty of breaking God's law, and helpless to rescue myself from eternal damnation. And the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners, and that through faith in his name, I can be judged as if I were Christ. That is the good news. Through faith in his name, I have eternal life, even though I was a law-breaking sinner who hated God. That is the good news. Now, let's shift gears into this area we call apologetics. So what is apologetics? 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, always being ready 
to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, these are genuine questions coming from genuine inquisitors who are asking you about Christianity. These are, these are not false converts, skeptics, mocking you. These are not atheists slamming you because they think Christianity is anti-intellectual, irrational. Now, the idea here with the use of the word logos in this context is that someone has asked you to provide a rational reason for why you have this hope in, in Christ. Explain to me how this, how this works. Why do you believe? Why do you have this hope about a future coming of Christ and the redemption of the world in the end and God's kingdom being established eternally? Um, it, would, it would not be in keeping with the Christian ethic to refuse to answer questions around the hope of Christ that resides in us. We should be eager to step up and explain why we have this hope in Christ. Now note that the Christian should always be prepared or ready to defend the hope that is in them. This should be something that you've thought about. This should be something that occupies your mind. This should be something that you have put some kind of energy into. And I'm not talking about going off to one of these arrogant, egotistical apologetics programs in some of these schools whose love for rationalism and science is at levels that would be probably described as idolatrous, according to Scripture. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about simply putting some deliberate thought, even writing down some of these things as they come to your mind and rehearsing them and thinking about them. And just be ready to have the conversation. Now, some mistakenly believe that this defense or answer must be one that is submitting itself to unbelieving thought. That is, we sometimes think that we have to give an answer to a skeptic or someone who is challenging us uh, in a way that it submits to their criteria for what is rational and what is not rational. And that is not what Peter says. What a Christian thinks is rational, the criteria of a Christian for rationality and the criteria for an unbeliever around rationality are going to be opposed to one another. They're going to be antithetical to one another because the presuppositions are radically different. Right? Coherence is the issue here. We do not provide an answer to the unbeliever in a way that it coheres within their system. Their system, their system is intrinsically incoherent from the start. So that would be something that we would not be able to even do if asked. But we can. What we can do is provide an answer that is coherent with Christianity, with what the Bible teaches. And then we will challenge the unbeliever to do the same thing, right? So how do we know this? Well, we know it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man, a man that is unregenerate, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness 
to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They do not cohere with unbelieving thought. That's what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's coherent. It's intelligible. It's consistent, internally consistent. All right, let's move on now to postmodernism. <clears throat> the characteristic doctrines of postmodernism constitute or, or imply some form of relativistic view of metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical ideas. That is to say that uh, postmodernists deny that there are aspects of reality that are objective, that there are statements about reality that are objectively true or false, that it is possible to have knowledge of such statements, objective knowledge, that it is possible for human beings to know some things with certainty and that there are objective or absolute moral values. Reality, knowledge, and value are constructed by discourses, they tell us. Hence, they can vary with those discourses. This means that the discourse of modern science, when considered apart from the evidential standards internal to that modern science, has no greater purchase on the truth than do alternative perspectives. For example, astrology, witchcraft. Additional examples can be seen in the gender dysphoria nonsense that's taking place right in front of us. Modern science, science itself, biology, uh, must make way for the whims and wishes of modern people who have completely gone insane. Postmodernists sometimes characterize the evidential standards of science, including the use of reason and logic, as enlightenment rationality. Now, an example, an example of this from the real world, and this is one of the things I think I'm going to start focusing on, is the, ref the reflection or the version versions of Christianity that we see on Twitter reflect the ideas about Christianity of this society. Gives us a good feel for just how, how many false converts and false teachers there are even inside what we once would consider to be very solid churches, the evangelical churches. So this Twitter person, in a response to some tweet that I made, I can't even remember the tweet that I put out, came back and says, ultimate truth seems so much more transcendent than the propositional ground rules I'm constrained to. So here is a person who is fit would fit uh, the the postmodernist category. 
whether they would claim to be a postmodernist or not, whether they would object to being called a postmodernist or not, is irrelevant. Um, people are what they deny to be all the time. All right, ultimate truth. We think about that. Ultimate truth is truth is truth that is true for everybody. Uh, moreover, all truth is ultimate truth, if it is truth at all. Truth is not subjective. It is objective. It doesn't change. Only the reference uh, changes. Only what you're referring to changes. I like a particular flavor of ice cream. My wife likes a different flavor of ice cream. That doesn't mean you're talking about subjective truth. It's objectively true that I like a particular type of ice cream and my wife likes a different type of ice cream or flavor of ice cream. All right. Now, this man, when he says ultimate truth seems so much more transcendent than the propositional ground rules, I am constrained to. Um, he is implying in his claim uh, that this is true for everybody. All humans are constrained to the these propositional ground rules that he's talking about. So we already have a problem because that particular claim transcends himself and everyone else. We call that a self-defeating statement. What he's trying to say, what he's trying to deny, he's having to presuppose is the case in the denial of it. The fact that he views himself as constrained to a set of rules also indicates that he is operating as if ultimate truth is a thing and that it is a thing about which he has some knowledge. And furthermore, it is a thing to which he must submit. In other words, it's binding. It's binding. And this is the, this is the issue, is the binding nature of truth. It's that binding that humans have trouble with. They don't want that. They want complete autonomy in every area of reality. All right. Number three, everyone has ground rules to which they must submit. This is the claim. We, we call this human reason. The laws of logic are just that, ground rules that dictate the laws of thought. He will assert this in this statement that he's making, but if you call him on it, if you just if you step away from this statement and ask him about ground rules that everybody has to submit to, he will, my guess is, deny that. All the while affirming it in how he lives. People don't live what people don't let's sit this way. People live what they believe. Everything else is just noise. The laws of logic are universal and hence represent a perfect example of ultimate truth that all humans know something about and actually live by. We order our thinking according to the laws of logic. It cannot be the case that the truck sitting in my driveway is blue and the truck sitting in my driveway is red. If there's one truck sitting in my driveway that's blue, the statement cannot be true that that truck is red. 
That's what we, that's what we would call a contradiction. Now, imagine a world in, in which humans really did have no access to ultimate truth or where ultimate truth didn't really exist. What would that world look like? Could society function in such a state? It could not. The claim that ultimate truth seems so much more transcendent assumes there is ultimate truth and then denies it. The necessary precondition for these ground rules is actually ultimate truth that transcends all of us and it is something we have access to. The guy seeks to deny that we can know ultimate truth while claiming to know ultimate truth. Okay, so what I just gave you is an example of how you might think about some of the irrational claims and insane thinking that is engulfing modern American society. So from a rational standpoint, when you think about this, the problem for post postmodernism, uh, relativism is really the biggest problem. The denial that there is objective truth regarding reality, epistemology, and morality is itself an objective truth regarding those very things. Once you understand this, anytime you start to encounter this kind of uh, thinking in your evangelism, you should know how to respond to this. By what standard do these people claim that there is no such thing as objective truth because that is actually an assertion of objective truth when you say it. All right, so what this means is that there is an inherent self-defeating nature bound up in relativism, and this is true for any outlook, any worldview, any philosophy that attempts to deny objective truth. Objective truth cannot be denied unless objective truth is actually the case. The claim there is no such thing as objective truth cannot be made unless objective truth is a reality. Now, where's this showing up in the church? The objective standard for the church is the word of God. It's been attacked from two basic sides. Uh, there's an open and unashamed denial of the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, which ripples into every other doctrine on the nature of Scripture, sola scriptura. It's our final authority, clarity. Uh, you know, that's just your interpretation, and so on and so forth. This is uh, breaking into the churches everywhere, and it should be shut down, and the people who are trying to import these things should be viewed the way 2 Peter chapter 2 views them, as vomit-eating dogs and swine wallowing in their own crap their own feces. That's how they should be viewed. They are enemies of Christ. They are enemies of God. They are enemies of the church. They're not friends with whom we have a simple disagreement. They are demons in the flesh seeking to tear down the kingdom of God. We should see them for what they are. The second thing is in, in, in that we see, the second place we see this in the church is embracing a, a postmodern post hermeneutic that allows one to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. 
right? They'll make these statements that, you know, there are many interpretations of that particular text, but then they will not go on to actually put forth the one they believe and, and put forth a defense, an exegetical defense, which actually calls their hermen, the, the integrity of their hermeneutic into question because their hermeneutical rules, the rules for interpretation, interpreting, interpreting the scripture. I can't speak this morning. Their rules for interpreting the scripture change according to their agenda and the text that they're dealing with. All right. They've already formed and shaped their ideas. They already have their theology in place. And they're going to defend it. They're not going to allow Scripture to correct it, make adjustments, inform it. No, they're going to correct Scripture. Right. Now, in both these cases, a denial of the nature, a, histor a historic Christian Orthodox nature of the Scripture, and a denial of any kind of hermeneutic that has any kind of integrity with it, in both these cases, modern pagans can claim to be Christian while importing pagan morality into Christianity, into Christianity and purging it of many of its most basic teachings and practices. And that's what's happening, the deconstruction of Christianity. This is the attempt that's going on right now as we speak. This results in, in a society that lives in deep immorality while at the same time thinking itself to be not just Christian, but morally superior to Christianity. And, and, of course, even, in some cases, the apostles and the scriptures themselves. I can't tell you how many times in, in correcting someone, if I quote an apostle, the response I get is, well, Jesus didn't say that. That was Paul or Peter or James or John or whomever. It wasn't Jesus. This is how you know you're dealing with a false convert. You're dealing with someone who does not know Christ. And they hate God. They're, they have no interest in the truth. All they're interested in is exchanging God the creator for a God like four-footed beasts animals, creeping things, a God like themselves. That's what they're, they're interested in. All right. Let's uh, move along to existentialism. And I know if these words are new to you, do not be intimidated by these words. We'll try to make sure that we just break it down so that a person who is an existentialist will be easy for you to, to spot and recognize. The more, the more important thing is the principles for dealing with people who are postmodernists, people who are existentialists, um, and giving them the gospel. And at the end of the day, you're going to hear me say that this really doesn't change uh, the gospel one bit. It doesn't change evangelism one bit. We are still going to give them the gospel. Doesn't, doesn't matter. It is helpful for you, though, to understand the type of people that you're going to encounter as you give them the gospel uh, so that you can have a ready 
response. You've already been exposed to this kind of thinking. You understand it a little bit, and you can you can respond at a basic level uh, and provide correction, and then get to the gospel as quickly as possible. Another philosophy that you're encountering in the culture that we're seeing is called existentialism. It's a philosophical theory or an attitude having various interpretations, generally, generally emphasizing the uh, existence of the individual as a unique agent with free will and responsibility for his or her own acts, though living in a universe devoid of any certain knowledge of right and wrong, right? So from one's plight as a free agent with uncertain guidelines may arise feelings of anguish. Existentialism is concerned more with concrete existence rather than abstract theories of essences. Uh, it is contrasted with rationalism and empiricism and is associated with guys like Kierkegaard, uh, Heidegger, and, and uh, Sartre, as well as, as others. This manifests itself most clearly in the gender insanity phenomenon taking place in modern American culture. Regardless of the problems, would in postmodernism, existentialism, any other godless philosophy, not just godless philosophies, but philosophies that are diametrically opposed to Christianity, the cure's the same. The solution is the same. And the solution is the gospel. It is not placating to these people. It is not, it is not uh, what we would call in modern terms being nice to these people who are propagating this nonsense in the culture or in the church. These are pernicious wolves in the church. The Bible does not teach us to be nice to false teachers. It teaches us to put them out of the church, to call them out. Jesus himself called them whited sepulchers, serpents, brood of vipers, children of the devil, swine, dogs. And the New Testament is filled with adjectives that are absolutely not what we would consider kind to people who are false teachers. You see, we've been, we've been told by the elites in evangelicalism, the so-called leaders, that, uh, that, that Christianity has been unkind to homosexuals, and so we, we have to change how we have the conversation. Uh, we have to change our attitude. We have to, to be more loving and, and charitable. And all that does is give a, a way of passage or a rite of passage to some of these false teachers who hold these ideas into the churches. Look around you. What is happening We've said this all along. What needed to happen up front and what needs to happen today is that we have to come with the gospel of Jesus Christ that basically says all men are born sinners, enemies of God by nature and in their behavior. 
They hate God. They are hostile to God. They stand under condemnation. And the only solution for them, the only hope for them, is the love of God manifested at the cross of Calvary. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if they have rejected the gospel, if they have rejected the words of God, if they had rejected the commandments of God and still think they can wear the cross of Christ, we are responsible for calling that out as passionately and as directly and as clearly as we possibly can. The solution, the cure for these godless philosophies remains unchanged. And it's the gospel. In short, postmodernism, existentialism, along with any goddess philosophy, is the result of a sin problem. And the only cure for this sin problem is the gospel. Transgenderism is a sin problem. Homosexuality, a sin problem. Abortion, murdering babies, a sin problem. Homelessness, by and large, a sin problem with some few exceptions, a sin problem. Drugs, a sin problem. And in many cases, the mental illness we see, a sin problem. Not in all cases. In some cases, we know that we have brother-at-arms who suffered uh, seriously in defending our country, and we should take care of those kind of people. Absolutely. We are indebted to them. No question about it. What all this means is that your evangelism will be, must be, as confrontational as ever. And I think even more than ever. You cannot be winsome. You cannot think that, oh, well, I've, you know, I've got to make them my friend First, because the minute they start uncovering what you think about these issues, you can toss friendship out the window. They're not going to want to be your friend, for the most part. They may fake it a little bit. But it isn't being a friend with someone that saves them. It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel. I've heard these pastors talk about being winsome. I've heard them talk about friendship evangelism. Uh, I've heard pastors say that it's mean to tell someone you're going to hell. That's idiotic. It's mean not to tell someone they're going to hell. That is unloving. It is unloving not to give people the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have allowed the enemy to convince us through pagan values and ideas that it's actually mean to give them the gospel, to tell them the truth. Yeah. One of the most vexing developments today is a rejection of the doctrine of original sin, despite the clear teaching of Scripture on the subject. clear 
the seemingly irresistible argument from church history. Young Cavils, false converts, have infected the churches with the idea that all humans are born in just the same innocent state that Adam was created in. These are ignorant men who are untrained, immature, and inexperienced. But because everyone can have a platform today, they have a platform. And this kind of idea resonates with unbelievers. It resonates with false converts. You will have to deal with it in your evangelism sooner or later. This has opened the floodgates to a low view of God, sin, a high view of man, and resulted in the tolerance in the tolerance of levels of immorality in the churches that up until this time have been unheard of, unheard of in Christianity, unheard of in the churches. The Bible is condemned for either uh, or believed to be an error for holding a number of views, especially on immorality. Well, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. That's right, it, it doesn't. It doesn't categorize slavery as a sin. The Bible condemns homosexuality. It condemns feminism and therefore is misogynistic. It's it's patriarchal. <laughs> it, it is biased against women because it places men in positions of leadership and demands that men be leaders. These sections of Scripture are dismissed out of hand in preference for modern morals that are, in fact, no morals at all. The point is that the most evil people among us who practice the most wicked deeds think they love Jesus. How do you evangelize them? And this is becoming more and more the case. You cannot evangelize them without confronting them. You must confront them. You must bring the law of God to their attention in order to bring the good news into the discussion. You must show that they stand guilty before a holy God in need of a Savior. You have to do what a true Christian does with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelism must be confrontational. You are guilty. You're a condemned sinner in the eyes of a perfectly good and righteous God. You cannot save yourself. You have violated his law. There is no deed great enough or good enough that you could do that would be sufficient for you to make up for what you've done or become pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith comes only through hearing the gospel. Jesus died for the sins of the world. And unless you repent and believe 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will surely die in your sin. Now, genuine faith comes with evidence that your evil heart has been regenerated. Jesus himself said, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It is the one who does the will of the Father that has genuine faith and has truly heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God can convince men that they are sinners standing under his condemnation and in need of a Savior. God has called you to be the mouthpiece as a believer. God has called you to convey to sinners that they are, in fact, sinners, lost, hostile, enemies of God, that they do not, in fact, love God, regardless of what their heart tells them. Their heart is deceitfully wicked. They don't know that. They think they have a good heart. All sinners think they have a good heart. They think they love Jesus, but they do not. You have to tell them and show them from Scripture they do not love Jesus. They do not love God. And in fact, they embrace the very things God hates. And they are without hope. And then in comes the good news. That's how evangelism has always been done. It's how evangelism is done in the Bible. It's been done like this throughout church history. And if you're going to do evangelism faithfully, in line with Scripture, you will do evangelism this way. Remember these words from our Lord. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. There is no other way.